All right, well, turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Last week, as we finished chapter 1, we saw Jesus ministering in Capernaum and the surrounding area, casting out demons, calling the first disciples, healing Peter's mother-in-law, and continuing to preach to announce the good news of the kingdom. And that will continue today. Uh, We'll be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. And we'll see the beginnings of some controversy and confrontation. And that's going to continue on next week as well. And really throughout the book of Mark. This morning, our text is in three parts. Verses 1 through 12, Jesus claims he can forgive sins. Verses 13 to 17, Jesus calls an unlikely disciple. And then in verses 18 through 22, Jesus counters a challenge about fasting. And each of these accounts this morning will tell us something about the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing, that he's announcing. So let's start there in verses 1 through 12. Jesus claims he can forgive sins. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. All right, let me just give you a little bit of kind of background and just some context here to understand what we're seeing. And then I want to comment on a couple of parts of the story. So first of all, in verses 1 and 2, Jesus is back in Capernaum again. There you see on the map, it's on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And it says that he's at home. Remember, Jesus has made Capernaum his home base, at least here for the first part of the ministry. He's probably living in Peter's house. You remember, this is um, what you see of Capernaum today. And so you've got the synagogue that has been... um, excavated here. It's not the original one, but the foundation of this is the synagogue where Jesus was in Capernaum. Last week we saw that. And then the modern looking building over there on the left is that modern church that has kind of a glass floor so that you can see what's underneath it. And what's underneath it is Peter's house. And so from archaeology, we've been able to determine that at least very likely, that is Peter's house. And it's probably where Jesus is at this point. Now, it says that the crowds, once they heard that he was at home, they come gathering and he's preaching. He's teaching. What is it that he's saying to them? Well, 
if you take your Bible and you're in Mark 2 and you flip back to Mark 1, verse 15, just as a reminder, this is what Jesus is preaching. Mark 1:15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe the good news. That's the core of Jesus' message. That's what he's preaching. Okay? Now, it says in verses 3 and 4, we've got these guys that carry a paralyzed man to be healed by Jesus. They bring him to Jesus, but they can't get in because the house is packed full, and so they go up on the roof. Now, that's not as strange as it might sound to us because houses in, in this land and in, in this time almost always had a flat roof, and they have a stairway on the outside of the house to get up there. They would use that flat roof like we would use a back deck. And so you might have a meal out there. You might sit out there in the evening because it's cooler. Sometimes in hot weather, they would even sleep on the roof out there. So it's not unusual for them to go up there. This is kind of what it would look like from the inside. You had beams kind of across the walls and then cross beams on top of that and then a thatched roof. And there was mud that would be added to that. And then there was a kind of a harder layer of mud on top. And that would periodically get rolled with a stone in order to keep it flat because, you know, being the kind of material it was with rain or whatever, it would get, you know, kind of messed up. And so that's the kind of roof that this is that we have in view here. And so these guys come and it's, it's not like, you know, the drop ceiling in an office where you pull out that little styrofoam tile. It, that's not what they're doing. They really have to dig, but it's doable, right? They have to break apart that mud on the top and they're digging down through the thatched roof and of course while that's going on what's happening inside well Jesus was preaching I doubt he's continuing uh, because now there's pieces of mud and wood and whatever else raining down on him and whoever else is there in the middle of the house but that's what's going on that's kind of so you can picture that a little bit better as to how that might be happening now in verse 5 it says that Jesus saw their faith how do you see faith? Well, what that means, of course, is he saw the actions that were a result of their faith. What they're doing is demonstrating faith. Living faith has actions accompanying it. And Jesus, instead of focusing on physical healing here, says to the man, your sins are forgiven. He's focused on spiritual healing. And that, of course, brings about the charge of blasphemy, of dishonoring God. Right? Because why? What is it that they're saying? Well, only God can forgive sins. Are they correct about that? Yeah, that's exactly right. Their theology is straight. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And there's a whole lot of other verses that we could go to as well to see that God is the one who forgives sins. They're not wrong about that. But Jesus responds, and Jesus' logic is kind of moving from lesser to greater. He says, in terms of the visible evidence, what you can see, What's easier, to say that someone's sins are forgiven or to tell them, you're healed, get up and walk? Well, obviously, it's easier to just say your sins are forgiven because we don't see the physical evidence, the results of that. So Jesus is saying, look, it's a lot easier 
to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say you're healed. But, he says, I'm going to do this as a demonstration. So he's saying, I, I want you to understand that I actually do have the power to forgive sins. And as a sign of that, I'm going to physically heal this man. It's intentionally designed to communicate this greater spiritual reality. But in the midst of that, Jesus calls himself by name that we need to take note of. He calls himself the son of man. That's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to get there in just a minute because we need to see that in detail. But then the man rose. It's a picture of resurrection. All of these um, restorations like this in Mark. Mark uses the language of resurrection. So it's intentionally saying he rose. And the people are amazed and they give God glory. They recognize that there's something unique about Jesus. So the two things I want to talk about here in this part of the story is, first of all, this idea of forgiving sins. And then secondly, what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of Man? So first of all, who has authority to forgive sins? In the Old Testament, sin and disease often go together. They're associated. And if sin and disease go together, then forgiveness and healing go together as well. Okay? If sin and disease are associated, then forgiveness and healing are associated. It's not the case, now don't miss this, it is not the case that every instance of physical disease is the result, the direct result of particular sins. That's not what's being said. Now, there's disease in the world because of sin generally. It's part of the curse. And there are times where God sends sickness, disease, illness because of particular sins. That does happen. But we, in our limited understanding, can't look at someone and say, they're sick, they must have sinned, right? We, we can't go there because we're not God. We don't know that. That's not how it always works. But there is this association. So let me just kind of demonstrate this for you. One verse, and there's a list there because there's lots of other places you can see this association. Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, now listen, and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Forgiveness and healing together. That happens a lot in scripture, forgiveness and healing together, because they're associated. And the logic is this, disease or decaying is the activity of death invading the realm of the living, okay? And that's generally a result of sin. So when healing happens, when restoration happens, it's the opposite. It's a move in the opposite direction. It is the gracious movement of God driving back the advance of death, reclaiming territory that had experienced the deathly effects of sin. Now, in this life, that kind of healing is only temporary. It's often, as Jesus does it, for a sign. It's telling you something about who he is, about greater spiritual realities. 
But that's the association that's there. So healing is symbolic of forgiveness. And symbolically, if the effects of sin are being removed, then it's because the offense of sin has been dealt with. When Jesus announces that the man's sins are forgiven, the scribes are wondering, well, what gives him the authority to do this? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus' physical healing of the man is a picture, a proof of the spiritual healing that he's announcing, the forgiveness of sins. That's part of the announcement of the kingdom. Because the Old Testament prophets said that when the kingdom came, it would bring forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is claiming to have the very authority of God himself, which then leads us to the other thing we need to see, the Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite term for himself. When Jesus refers to himself, this is the name he uses most often, the Son of Man. And so if we want to understand what Jesus is claiming about himself, we need to kind of dig in and understand this term a little bit. The term Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to ask you to turn there this morning because we're going to be there for a few minutes. So turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 7. Now, Jesus' very words in Mark 2, verse 10, are drawn from Daniel chapter 7, when he says that, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority or dominion on earth. That language is coming directly from Daniel chapter 7. So, if you're there in Daniel 7, I'm just going to kind of skim through this chapter with you so that we can see why Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man. As you look at Daniel 7, the first eight verses, Daniel has a vision of four beasts. And those four beasts, we learn, rec- represent four kingdoms. They are the major kingdoms of the earth from the time of Daniel to the time of Christ. So it's the Babylonian Empire, it's the Medo-Persian Empire, it's the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, And then it's the Roman Empire with men like Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus. It's the empire that's in place when Jesus comes on the scene. Those are the four beasts, the four kingdoms. Now look at verse 9. Here's how Daniel's vision continues. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now who is the Ancient of Days? Well, in this vision, the Ancient of Days is God the Father. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So we have here the throne room of God, and it's a courtroom scene. The books are being opened. God is on his throne exercising judgment. Then jump down to verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Okay, there's our term. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Okay, so here you have the son of man coming on the clouds which is language that you're going to find later in the Gospels. But when it says the Son of Man is coming on the clouds, is he coming down to earth? 
No, not according to Daniel. He's coming up to the throne of the Ancient of Days. He's ascending to the throne. Okay, so when the Son of Man is coming on the clouds, that's what he's doing. He's, he's taking his throne. This is an enthronement scene. He, he's, this is about dominion and authority and a kingdom. Okay? Verse 14, And to him was given dominion, or authority, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so the Son of Man takes the throne with the Ancient of Days. He is given dominion, or authority. He's given a kingdom, and his kingdom is over all the earth, all peoples, nations, and languages. Now, if Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man, and the core message that he's giving is the announcement that the kingdom has arrived, what is he saying? He's saying, this vision in Daniel 7, that's me. I am the Son of Man, and I am now taking my kingdom. And it's a worldwide kingdom, and all dominion, all authority is given to him. By the way, fast forward to the end of the Gospels. What does Jesus say when he's leaving? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Right? This, is, this is the claim that Jesus is making. All right, let's continue here in Daniel 7. In... Um, Verse 17, we get the interpretation of the beasts. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So not only does the Son of Man get the kingdom, but the saints of the Most High get the kingdom. In other words, he is taking over as king, but he's handing his authority to his people. What is Jesus doing here at the beginning of his ministry? He's calling to himself disciples to whom he will give authority. He passes his authority off to the church on earth as he ascends to heaven. Look at verses 21 and 22. Uh, as I looked, this horn, I won't, we won't go into the details there, made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So here we have the saints being persecuted, being fought against. Verse 22, until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So God's, at this point in time here, that this is referring to, God's enemies seem victorious over the saints until the Ancient of Days came in judgment. I'll just tell you that's referring to A.D. 70. And the saints are vindicated then. They're shown to be in the right. Much of the book of Revelation tells this story. And then the saints possess the kingdom. Uh, Jump down to verse 27 in Daniel 7. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. 
His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Okay, so rule is given to the people of the saints of the Most High. In other words, Jesus hands the keys of the kingdom, keys of the church, to his followers before he ascends. It's his kingdom, but his church administers it here on earth. Now, that's Daniel 7. Now come back to Mark chapter 2. Here in Mark 2, Jesus is claiming for himself the authority of Daniel 7's Son of Man, who ascends to the throne with God. Jesus is saying, I am the one who has that authority. Who has authority to forgive sins? God alone. And Jesus sits on God's throne, claiming that authority for himself, because Jesus himself is God. That's the claim that Jesus is making when he says what he says in this. Now the Old Testament prophesied that the kingdom would bring healing and forgiveness of sins. And if healing and forgiveness of sins are now arriving, that means the kingdom has arrived. That's why Jesus is doing this. These are signposts to let people know the message I'm proclaiming is true. The kingdom has arrived. Mark 1.15, what is Jesus' message? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So what should you do? Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news, the announcement that Jesus is king. Let's go on to the next short, short story here, and it's a shorter one. We won't take as much time on it. Verses 13 to 17 in Mark 2. Jesus calls an unlikely disciple. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now just to help you understand, we often call Levi Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector, that's the same person here. And as he reclined at table in his house, that's in Levi's house, Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, so a few notes just to pay attention to the details of the text here. Again, it says, went out again beside the sea. Like we saw last week, when Mark says that this happened beside the sea, that's a signal to us that this is new creation, out of the water, so to speak. So when Jesus calls the disciples, it's always by the sea because he's creating something new. He's laying the foundation of the church. And Levi, Matthew, is a tax collector. So he's in the service of Herod Antipas, the local ruler, not Caesar in Rome. But the idea here is if you, were to, to, if you wanted to become a tax collector, you would bid on the job. In other words, you would say, here's how much I will collect and give to you annually, Herod. And Herod would accept the bid, and then you would collect that amount plus, in theory, what you needed to live on. In reality, a whole lot more because it was someone with authority. They had 
ability to gouge people. And so they would make all kinds of money for themselves by setting a high tax amount. So for that reason, a Jew who becomes a tax collector is despised by the rest of the Jews. They were an outcast. They were actually officially disqualified to serve as a judge or a witness in any legal proceeding. They were excommunicated from the synagogue. So Levi, the tax collector, can't go into the synagogue. He's been excommunicated because of his role as a tax collector. So this is someone who's hated by the rest of the Jews. And the issue here is the company that Jesus is keeping. Tax collectors. Sinners. The Pharisees and the scribes here see things in categories of righteous and sinners. Jesus doesn't argue with those categories. But he says, look, I came for sinners. I'm here offering healing and it's sick people who need healing. Now, Jesus is not saying that the scribes and the Pharisees don't actually need his message. What he's saying is, you think you're righteous, so you're in this category of people who don't see their need for me. I came for people who recognize that they are sinners and know they have a need, and I'm here to offer them forgiveness and healing. And the, the one thing that I want you to note here is this theme of feasting. Jesus' kingdom call is an invitation to a feast. You can think of the marriage supper of the Lamb. How is it that Jesus can sit down to a feast with sinners and tax collectors? And the reason is because he can forgive sins. Jesus is doing what God does when he calls people to a feast. When Israel was in Egypt, in slavery, God sent Moses and Aaron to speak to Pharaoh. This is Exodus 5, verse 1. It says, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go. Why? That they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So when God called and redeemed his people, he called them to a feast. Now, as soon as they exit Egypt, and he gets them out in the wilderness. He gives them his laws and how they're supposed to live. And part of the laws that God gives to them is a cycle of feasts. He mandates, you have to have a feast on this date, you have to have a feast here, and you have to have a feast here. What a cruel God to tell his people that they have to have feasts. This God is unique. He calls his people to a celebration. Yes, it's a celebration in honor of him because he's the one who's worthy, but he's calling his people to a feast, to a celebration. Matthew 8, we see Jesus saying, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus announces the kingdom, his kingdom invitation to this feast is to all kinds of people not just to the Jews. And that's why the scribes and the Pharisees have a problem with it, because Jesus is eating with the wrong kind of people. His invitation has gone out to the wrong kind of people. Think about the conflict that happens later on in the New Testament between Peter and Paul. Peter, while he's out serving as a missionary to the Gentiles, he's, he's sitting down at table with them, like Jews would not do, 
But now in Christ, this is a freedom that he has, something that God's doing something different. And so he sits down with the Gentiles and he has meals with them until he hears that there's some Jews coming from Jerusalem. And when they come, Peter separates himself. I'm not going to eat with the wrong kind of people now while these Jews are here. And Paul says, you're completely undermining the gospel, the good news, the kingdom announcement. Because Jesus' kingdom is for all kinds of people. And your actions are undermining that message. The feast that Jesus invites people to is a feast where all kinds of people are welcome. Entering Jesus' kingdom means coming to his feast, having fellowship with him. The last story that we have this morning in Mark 2 Verses 18 to 22, Jesus has this challenge about fasting that he's going to counter. Let's read these verses. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine for fresh wineskins. All right, so a little background to understand what's happening in this story. First of all, what is fasting? Well, fasting is going without food, usually for a time of spiritual focus on something in particular. And in scripture, it's usually repentance in preparation for atonement, for dealing with sins. Now, the Old Testament law only gave one day where Israel had to fast, and it was the Day of Atonement. So in preparation for that ceremony of atonement, they were to fast to show their repentance for sin. Now, other traditions had grown up through Israel's history, and so there were traditions of fasting on certain days. And then you have people like really serious religious groups like the Pharisees who fasted every Monday and every Thursday. We don't know what the story was for John the Baptist's disciples, but it sounds like it was something similar to that. And so the people raised the question, why are you different? Why don't you, Jesus, and your disciples fast? Are you not serious about this stuff like we are? And in answering, Jesus gives two analogies. The first one is a wedding feast. While the bridegroom is present, Jesus says, nobody's fasting. Instead, you're feasting. There we have it again, feasting. You're going to see it all through the book of Mark. Then Jesus gives this cryptic saying about the bridegroom being taken away, and that will be a time for fasting. And then he gives uh, one more analogy in two parts. And he says, if you have like an old garment, you don't put new cloth that hasn't been shrunk on that because when it does shrink, it's going to pull away from the garment and you'll have a, a tear that was worse than the first part. 
or when you have new wine, you don't put it into an old wine skin because an old wine skin would be like, you know, goat skin or something. And over time, it has dried up and become more brittle. And as you put new wine in there, as it ferments and the gases come out, it's going to burst the old wine skin. So you don't do that. You put new wine in new wine skins. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's commenting on the kingdom that he's bringing. And he has two things to say about it here. First of all, this new covenant, this new kingdom is different from the old one. And secondly, it's disruptive. Let me talk about the first one for a little while. His kingdom is different. In the old covenant era, fasting was appropriate because you were always looking forward to a future atonement. So you're looking forward to sins being washed away, that ceremony of the Day of Atonement, God's people being cleansed. So you're, you're always looking forward. The Day of Atonement is coming. And so we're fasting. You know, whenever you do it, it's, it's, it's repentance looking forward to that atonement. And then when the Day of Atonement passes, what are you looking forward to? The next Day of Atonement. You're always looking forward to atonement. Because what you have is a symbol, not the real thing. Okay? But now Jesus is saying, that atonement that you've been looking for has arrived. In his kingdom, sins are being washed away. And God's people are being cleansed permanently. So this this kingdom is different from the old. John's ministry, you know, this talks about John and his disciples. John's ministry was a ministry of preparation, of looking forward to the Messiah. But now that the Messiah is here, that mindset is no longer appropriate. You, you, just like it wouldn't be appropriate to be mourning at a wedding feast. Why would we fast, Jesus says, now that the kingdom is here? Then he hints at his death by talking about the bridegroom being taken away. It's not the bridegroom leaving, it's the bridegroom being taken away. That's not talking about his ascension into heaven, I don't think. I think it's talking about his suffering and his death, which is an appropriate reason for mourning, for fasting. Now, the imagery of the wedding feast that Jesus uses here as he talks about himself as the bridegroom is an important image, just like that title son of man is important. The imagery of the wedding feast is important. We don't have time to go into a lot of detail, but let me just give you a few pointers to kind of help think through this. I'm going to give you three passages of scripture. I'm not going to turn to them. I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to summarize what's going on in them. You can write them down and look at them later on your own if you'd like. Okay, so Jesus's kingdom as the new covenant wedding feast. We start in Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61, you have a description of the new covenant. It includes a lot of things that are already happening in Jesus' ministry. The Spirit of the Lord coming on him. He's bringing good news to the poor. He's binding up the brokenhearted. He's proclaiming liberty to the captives. All of that is what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 61 about this kingdom. But there's two things to note about what Isaiah is speaking of. The first is this. Isaiah says these will also be days of vengeance. Now, as we go through the book of Mark, as we get towards the end, Jesus warns about the judgment that is coming on Jerusalem and the temple for their unfaithfulness. And Jesus says, these will be days of vengeance. 
He's quoting Isaiah 61. But second, Isaiah says that these days that he's talking about, when all of this stuff is happening that's happening in Jesus' ministry, that will also be days of vengeance, the days of the arrival of the kingdom, Isaiah says these are also the days of a wedding feast. Isaiah says the bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and the bride adorns herself with jewels. Well, that vision of the bridegroom is talking about Jesus. The bridegroom decked out like a priest. We're going to see next week. Jesus is our great high priest and he is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. Just like we've noticed in previous passages in Mark, the kingdom that Jesus brings is both blessing and judgment, depending on which side you're on. So it's days of great blessing. The kingdom is coming and healing and forgiveness. And it's days of vengeance. Jesus will tell a story in Matthew 22 about a king who throws a great wedding feast for his son. So clearly the story here is God the Father is the king. Jesus is the son, the bridegroom, that the feast is being thrown for. And the story goes that lots of invitations went out, but people made excuses and they didn't come. So instead, the king invited all the outsiders and they came to the wedding feast. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Well, the original invitees are the Jews. But they reject the bridegroom when he arrives. They reject Jesus. So the wedding invitation, the good news, the gospel, goes to the outsiders, to the nations. And they come in for the feast. Then what does the king do? As Jesus tells the story, the king is angry at those who did not come. And so he sends his troops and burns their city. What is Jesus saying? Well, after he tells that story, he goes on in the next two chapters to describe the judgment that is about to fall on their city, the city of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. In other words, because the Jews have rejected the invitation to Jesus's wedding feast, the king, God the Father, will burn their city, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So again, we have a wedding feast, but at the same time, judgment for those who are on the other side of the line, those who reject the invitation, those who don't fellowship, those who don't come to the feast. One more example of the wedding feast imagery is Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, we find the marriage supper of the Lamb. It comes after a long section where John is detailing the judgment that's about to fall on Jerusalem, on the temple in AD 70, because of their unfaithfulness. If you remember our series in Revelation, God is divorcing Israel because she has persisted in being the unfaithful, rebellious, adulterous wife. But the bridegroom comes and takes a new bride, the church. That's the essence of the new covenant. And Revelation 19 then gives us the marriage supper feast of the Lamb, Jesus. So the book of Revelation presents this wedding feast as happening as the judgment 
of the adulterous wife is concluding. In other words, when the judgment of AD 70 fell and the divorce with Israel was complete, now the new covenant is fully accomplished or fulfilled. And here's the point of all of this imagery. Jesus says that the arrival of the bridegroom is cause for feasting, for celebration, not for fasting. This kingdom is different. The old covenant was preparatory. It was always looking forward to an ultimate fulfillment beyond itself. But the new covenant is the fulfillment. So the feast is on. And throughout this gospel, you will see Jesus inviting people to the feast. Here, it's Levi or Matthew. And the followers of Jesus are those who come to the feast. Those whose sins are forgiven and who now have fellowship with the bridegroom, Jesus. This new age, though, is also disruptive. Just like if you put new wine in old wineskins, what would happen? They would burst. Jesus tells us that this new kingdom era is also disruptive. It bursts the old molds. The old forms can't contain this kingdom. They're no longer appropriate or capable. Just like an old wineskin can't handle new wine as it ferments, so the old covenant forms are not equipped to handle the new covenant reality. And so there's change from fasting to feasting. If Jesus is the bridegroom, who's the bride? The New Testament's really clear about it. It's the church. So as this gospel of Mark goes on, especially when we get to chapter 13, we will see again that God's Old Testament bride has been unfaithful, is now being judged, divorced. Jesus is taking a new bride, the church, so this change from the Old Covenant era to the New Covenant era brings radical change. And one of those changes is that the bride is now the church, made up of Jew and Gentile. So the Old Covenant forms, the old wineskins, things that were specific to the nation of Israel, those things are no longer appropriate for the new covenant era. The new age is disruptive. Jesus' kingdom is different from the old covenant kingdom and it's disruptive. Let me just tie it together by giving you three things to think about, three sentences. Number one, Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Jesus has the power to forgive sins. The, the paralyzed man I'm sure, thought that his greatest need was to be able to walk. And so did his friends think that. As we look around our world today, we see a lot of needs. There are relationships that fall apart. There are financial struggles. There are psychological issues, identity things, gender confusion. On a national level, we've got the politics that are going on and we've got the division and we've got illegal immigration and we've got wars and all of those things. The ultimate need underneath all of it is for our sins to be forgiven. That's why Jesus came. He announces a kingdom that, yes, touches on all of those other things, but at the core of what he is doing, he's forgiving sins. He's dealing with the separation 
that comes between God and us because of our sin. And so Jesus goes to the cross in our place, taking our sin penalty on himself, paying that penalty, giving us his righteousness so that we can have fellowship with him. That's the ultimate need underneath all the other needs. And until that's dealt with, the rest of it's just going to be band-aids. Second sentence, Jesus calls sinners to follow him. Levi, Matthew, was the wrong kind of person. He was rejected by the righteous Jews. He didn't have anything to offer Jesus. Probably the other followers that Jesus had already picked would be really, really suspicious of this guy, right? If you're Peter and Andrew and James and John and you've been paying taxes to this guy and he's been gouging you for years and now Jesus says, hey, he's joining us too. You're going to have some trust issues. But Jesus doesn't call people because they're the right kind of person. We, see, we have this tendency to think, oh, God could really use that person. Like a big sports star or a celebrity, somebody with money or power. Man, that guy's got a platform. If he became a Christian, think what God could do. But God calls sinners to repentance. In other words, those who know they are sinners. Those who see their need. After all, he called me. And if you're a follower, he called you. We need to remember that as we take the good news into the world. So Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Jesus calls sinners to follow him. And third, Jesus calls his followers to the feast. Following Jesus, even when it's hard, should ultimately be a delight. There's no better meal. There's no better feast out there. There's no other place where you're going to find more satisfaction. Christians shouldn't be sour and depressed people. They should be joyful even in the midst of suffering. Because we've been called to a feast, to fellowship with Jesus. And what he has to offer is far more satisfying than anything the world has to offer. Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Jesus calls sinners to follow him, and Jesus calls his followers to the feast. Let's close in prayer. Lord, as we consider what we've seen here in the Gospel of Mark in this second chapter, I pray that what Jesus is telling us about himself would sink in. That we wouldn't just understand it, but that it would become um, a part of us in that we really believe it, that we respond to it. We are thankful for the forgiveness of sins. We recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and that's the kind of people that you call to follow. And when we follow you, we're given the blessing of a feast, of a fellowship with you. Help us to believe these truths and to live differently because of them. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.